Lord, we do thank you for uh, your goodness to us. Thank you for that uh, lovely time of worship that we had. Uh, and it just reminded us of what an amazing God you are and all you've done for us. And Lord, as we look into your word, again, we'll be reminded of that this morning. And Lord, would you feed us? We pray that you'd encourage us. We pray your Holy Spirit would take my words and apply them to our lives to build us up, to, to, to thrill us afresh with all that you have for us, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may recall as we were singing earlier that, that we sang how amazing God is and how indescribable, uh, uncontainable. He is a stunning God and we have a stunning saviour. And we're going to see something of that this morning. So although we're British, um, you are entitled to get excited if you wish. You may utter the old amen or hallelujah, even if I don't hear it because you're on mute. Uh, but there's some good stuff. And uh, my prayer is that God will bless each one of us and build us up and encourage us. Today we're starting in the book of 1 Peter. So if you'd like to turn there, um, chapter 1. And uh, before we get into the text, I think it's good to look at some background so that we know the author, we know the context, and therefore we can understand the passage that much better. Uh, the author is the Apostle Peter, and that seems to be accepted by most people. Uh, after all, he does introduce himself in the first sentence as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that pretty much nails it, I think. And as one of the 12 apostles, he has the authority of a shepherd over the sheep. I think particularly given the conversation that Peter had with Jesus on the shore of Lake Galilee after Jesus' resurrection, when, G when Jesus reinstated Peter with the command to feed and care for the sheep of God's flock, of God's people. Peter was one of the first five disciples of Jesus, along with his brother Andrew, and both were previously followers, followers of John the Baptist. And Peter became one of the primary apostles in the early church. He was given the keys of the kingdom by Jesus. And given Peter's influence and authority in the early church, a letter from him would carry a good deal of importance. So I think it's fitting that we read it today. Uh, and over the coming weeks, we'll be working through the letter. And we should note what it says, given who it's come from. And obviously, we know the ultimate source is God in the person of the Holy Spirit who inspired him to write it. We learn from chapter 5, verse 12, that Silvanus was also involved in the letter, possibly the actual writer with Peter dictating it. And that perhaps might explain why the Greek is better than might have otherwise been expected from Peter as a fisherman. And in the following verse in 5.13, there is the suggestion that Peter is writing from Babylon. Um, commentators are a bit divided as to whether that actually is Babylon or whether it's a, a symbolic reference to Rome, where we do know that Peter is thought to have spent the latter part of his life. And it's thought likely that Peter wrote this letter in the early to mid 19, not 1960, the mid 60s in the first century. Uh, and um, one of the purposes of the letter is to encourage believers in the face of suffering. And we learn of the recipients of the letter uh, from verses one and two. So let's get at the text. 
And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and to you and peace be multiplied. Peter here is writing to pilgrims. Uh, often tra translated in some versions as sojourners or strangers. And these are believers in Jesus Christ. But the word he uses uh, reminds us that we are but passing through this life with an eternal destiny. Reminding us that this world is not our real home. Yes, we might live here. It might be all we know thus far. But we are citizens of heaven first and foremost and that should direct our worldview and our daily life as we journey uh, through through life here and the pilgrims that peter uh, refer specifically wrote to are those of the five areas listed in verse one but they are said to be of the dispersion now that is a technical jewish term even today, and refers to Jews living outside the land of Israel. And there are many commentators who, who teach, I believe wrongly, that the church has replaced Israel, and they try to argue that these are dispersed Gentile Christians. But for Peter as a Jew, this hardly holds any water, because he would never have used this term that way. These are Jewish believers who have been dispersed outside Israel probably because of the persecution following the stoning of Stephen. And add to that the fact that Peter is known as the apostle to the circumcision, namely the Jews. And I think we can conclude that he really is writing to scattered Jewish believers. And the places that Peter mentions are in modern day Turkey, and they were all Roman provinces of the day. Okay, let's get more into the body of the text with that background. Uh, in verse 2, Peter describes the recipients of the letter as elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now that phrase gets the Calvinists in the church very excited because they suggest that it prove that, proves that God sovereignly chooses those who will be saved and uh, the slightly more extreme Calvinists equally argue that God has not chosen the rest so that he determines then for damnation. I don't think that's right. God has a heart for everybody to be saved. Not everybody will be saved, but God has a heart for salvation and relationship. But nowhere in the Bible uh, does it teach that some people, arguably even most people, are predestined for damnation. Everyone is lost because of the fall until such time as we respond positively to God's gracious invitation to believe in Jesus Christ as the only means of our salvation. What we do know is that God is outside time. He knows everything that will ever occur. He's known it from eternity past, who will be saved and who will not. He has done everything possible to make salvation available to everyone and is given to each person the dignity of being made in the image of God. And with that, we have the ability to make a free choice 
to uh, accept the invitation offered to us in Jesus Christ or not. God is not fickle or arbitrary in his selection of people for salvation or damnation. He knows who will respond to the Holy Spirit's work of drawing each one to Christ. Furthermore, God's election and foreknowledge do not remove the guilt of the person who rejects Christ. Now, I might leave a £20 note on the table when my grandchildren are around in the knowledge that they might steal it. But that knowledge does not remove the guilt of the one who actually steals it. And that's the same with God. He, he knows in advance what's going to happen, but we are still accountable to him for the choice that we make for Christ or not. God's heart, however, is to draw people to salvation, not to select certain people to reject it. And I think it's helpful to consider this first part of verse 2 alongside the rest of the verse. It's one verse as part of one passage. Um, and equally, that can apply to, to us uh, because Peter was writing to Jewish Christians. He's writing to us, too. And uh, the people he was writing to were elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, sorry, grace to you and peace be multiplied. The election by the Father is in accordance with his foreknowledge, not perhaps based upon it. It's the Holy Spirit who works sanctification in us. We get the sanctification positionally when we first come to Christ, when we believe for salvation. Uh, and then we have ongoing sanctification as we move on in Christ, as, as we grow in our Christian walk. And that sanctification gives evidence that we have been saved. And the result is, as we heard with the children, is that we should be bearing fruit, good fruit. The election by God the Father is for a purpose. It's for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus provided the means for our salvation, the sprinkling of his blood. But the obedience relates to man's responsibility. Because the word here means listening and submitting to that which is needed. It's the obedience of faith so that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the glorious outcome is that grace and peace are multiplied to these readers. And we all need God's grace in order to enjoy all that he wants to give to us. There's a lot more we could say about that subject, but I want to move on in the passage. Otherwise, we'll be here all morning. Uh, just on those verses. So let's look at verses three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I think it's actually hardly any wonder that Peter begins his message this way. Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is so good. He's done so much for us. 
And one of the, the major blessings, of course, is that he sent his son to die for us so that we might live. And it's very right that we bless God for all he's done for us, especially given the content that Peter goes on to deliver. Because here Peter states that according to God's abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. In other words, he has enabled us to be born again to a new life with a living hope. That's brilliant news. So let's unpack it a bit more. The word for blessed here is used eight times in the New Testament in Greek, and it's always used of God, not man. It reflects the Jewish custom of saying, blessed be he, after mentioning God. Then he describes God as the God and Father of Jesus Christ, which, of course, is the relationship relating to Jesus' humanity. As a human, Jesus, as God as his Father. But Jesus is, of course, the eternal Son of God as part of the Trinity. And God has poured, has poured abundant mercy upon us in bringing us to our new birth. We deserved his wrath. We deserved his judgment. But Jesus has taken that for us on the cross so that now we receive God's mercy, but only as we are born again by the Holy Spirit. See how the whole Trinity is involved in this. And the glorious consequence of this is that we have living hope. We know that we, live, we will live for eternity in God's glorious presence as a part of the bride of Jesus Christ. This is good news, isn't it? And this hope is a certainty for those who are born again. It's backed by God's infallible and unchanging word, which in turn is backed by his impeccable character. It's rock solid. Human hope so often lets us down and we can become disillusioned. But the living hope that we have through Jesus is never failing. We know that we have this hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His death paid the price for our sin, but his resurrection confirms that God accepted the price paid in the blood of his son. And having risen, Jesus will die no more. And he will ensure that we as his bride will live forever with him. Everything that God does is characterized by his glory and that includes our salvation. And we see the wonder of our hope in verse four. It's an incorruptible and un undefiled, in other words, an uncontaminated, sin-free inheritance that does not fade away. And it's reserved in heaven for you. As believers in Christ, our reservation is already made. And it couldn't be better. It's safe, it's secure, beyond the reach of any destructive forces. Now, sometimes Francis and I have arrived at a hotel where we've made a booking to find they're double booked and there was no room for us to stay, so we were diverted somewhere else. But that will never happen in heaven. Our reservation is sure and it's kept for us. On this earth, everything that we see 
are and possess is defiled by sin to some extent, and it fades away. We expect our cars to wear out, our washing machines and other appliances. Things go wrong with our homes because we live in a fallen world that's fading away. Even immovable seeming mountains, well, apart from the fact they have avalanches and things crumble off them, but one day they're going to be rolled up and removed by God when he makes the new heavens and earth. And normally the beneficiaries of an inheritance don't receive it until the death of the person making the bequest. And Jesus died. So we're entitled to it. But Jesus rose again. Hallelujah. So he's alive forevermore to share the bounties of his inheritance with us forever. And this inheritance is incorruptible. It will never decay, never fade, never become jaded, because it remains new and fresh always. And because Jesus lives forever with undiminished life and power, so our inheritance in him cannot diminish, but it lasts in full measure forever. It's fresh always, new and glorious. And being undefiled, it will never be tainted, never contaminated, never damaged, and we will enjoy it forever in an environment that is sin-free. And even before we reach the eternal state, our inheritance is undefiled, for it flows from the pure, holy Godhead. It is beautifully good and perfect. And the glorious reality of this, I think, should get us, get us excited and motivated to love and serve God with greater zeal and passion. In verse 5, Peter focuses on the security of this glorious inheritance that we have. It's kept in heaven for us by the power of God. And yes, of course, God calls us to be faithful and to walk with him during our time on earth. But our security is rooted in the keeping power of God. Now, when my children were young and I, I had this experience yesterday with my older grandson, uh, I would tell them to hold my hand when we crossed a road or we were walking along a path that was dangerous. And they held my hand. But actually, they were safe because I was holding their hand. The security was in the grasp I had on their hand rather than the grasp they had on mine. And similarly, we hold on to God as we walk with him. But our security is through him holding us and keeping us safe for eternity. And the word kept there speaks of a military guard. We are being kept and guarded as if by a divine military sentinel. In other words, God is personally watching over us concerning our inheritance. And the tense of the Greek word for, uh, translated as kept is a present participle, which signifies a continuous process of God guarding our salvation for the inheritance that we will enjoy. It's not kept by us, but by God. And when the challenges of life come, the truth of these through few verses should, should thrill and encourage and delight us. And it's worth meditating on these verses three to five to draw the rich goodness from them. 
And God isn't kept frantically busy altering his records as to whether the various believers on earth are in fellowship with him, sort of deleting them when they're not, adding them back when, to the list of heirs when, for his inheritance according to our performance at any given time. It's kept for us. He keeps it for us. And we have the gift of eternal life by his grace because of our faith in what Jesus has done, not on how well we perform. And it's a precious thing to be kept by the power of God because his word is true and he is true to his word because he cannot lie. And we mustn't miss the last part of verse five, that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. <clears throat> we are kept for salvation. Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. The Father planned it before the foundation of the world. And the Holy Spirit convicts us that we come to believe in Jesus Christ as the only Saviour. And of course, Jesus is the Saviour. The whole Trinity is involved again. It's a glorious and it's a sure salvation. And I suspect, and in fact I know, we will only appreciate its full richness when we pass beyond this life. We may get a glimpse now, but the full richness is going to come. And Peter tells us that it is ready to be revealed in the last time. It speaks of preparation, of accomplishment. Jesus has done everything necessary. The Holy Spirit has securely sealed us and is working in us so that we are prepared for that great day when the fullness of our salvation is revealed. We're being prepared as a bride for her husband. And with Jesus as the groom, our future could not be better. Peter then continues in verses six to nine. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And Peter starts with the words in this. He's referring back to the glorious salvation and the inheritance that we have in Christ. And we can and we should rejoice in it, even though we might be grieved by various trials. And even during difficult trials, we can rejoice greatly in the hope that we have, because the trials are temporary, whilst our eternal future that forms the basis of our hope lasts forever. It's no wonder that Paul, Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, because we must see the events of life through God's lens and not through that of the world. God knows the strength of our faith already, but he wants to make it stronger, and he wants to uh, allow us to see the growth and the blessings that come from that growth. And this section has similarities to the beginning of the letter of James, because we're told that we can rejoice in our salvation and our hope, even in the face of trials, because through this, 
our faith is tested so that it matures and grows stronger. The trials occur in a variety of ways because we live in a troubled world. So some affect us sort of directly aimed at us and some are there because of the effects of the fall generally. But Peter says that our faith is more precious than gold, which although long lasting, it does perish while our faith lasts longer beyond this earth to eternity with the Lord. Gold is tested by fire to make it purer. And our faith is tested so that it is purified and strengthened. And it's all to the praise, honour and glory of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that surely lifts the trials and challenges of life to a new level because God has a good purpose for them. We may not enjoy them, but we have the reassurance that God will use them for his glory and honour as we grow in our faith through them. If you think of those uh, three friends of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they knew the reality of this when they were in the fiery furnace. But what made the difference for them was the, the fourth person in there, the Son of God. And he makes the same difference for us in our trials. And that's so different from the way that the world will view trials. But God's word tells us to view life from his viewpoint and not that of the world. And there will be reward in heaven for, for us for faithfulness and great glory to the Lord. But he is the one who sustains us in our trials. God is in complete control of the universe. He's in complete control of our lives, even if we aren't. And he's working faithfully through our many, our many errors and trials and heartaches. And in the end, we'll look back on our lives and say, so that's why that happened. For now, we should trust that he hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't carefully forgotten about our every need. He's there with us all through the difficult times. And in verse 8, Peter speaks of Jesus Christ as the one who we have not seen, but whom we love. And that takes faith, but it's faith based on the rock-solid evidence of God's unfailing word. Jesus came to earth to die and save us, but we can have sure faith in that. And then because of what he's done for us, we love him. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in us as we trust and know him in that. And our love for Jesus is a sign of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Many people are happy to talk about church or perhaps even God or even theology. But we need the Holy Spirit to ignite our love for Jesus so that we love to talk about him because we have a relationship with him. If you see a, a young couple just falling in love, they, 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 they bore people to tears sometimes because they keep wanting to talk about their, their newfound love. But what about us? Do we have that love for Jesus? We want to share him, to talk about him because he's so lovely to us. And Peter says that we don't yet see Jesus, but believing we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. From this, we can see that a genuine faith turns a person upside down, or actually perhaps we should say it turns them the right way up. And this joy is so good that there are no words to describe it. 
but that it's inspired by the glory that's yet to come. And when we encounter its fullness, when we see the, the Lord face to face, we will understand the reason for our trials. But we will love, love Jesus all the more because we will appreciate even more all that he's done for us. And then we will receive the end or the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And may God open our eyes to the magnificence of our salvation, because it is truly glorious. And when we see its beauty, we will love Jesus daily more and more. It's important that we appreciate all that God plans and performs in our lives is in preparation for what he has in store for us, for us in heaven. And he only does good things. So to close today, let's look briefly at verses 10 and 11. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what matter, manner of time the spirit of Jesus who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed that not to, to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And the Old Testament prophets searched diligently to understand these things <clears throat> as they prophesied of the grace that would come to us. They faithfully recorded what, what God inspired them to write, but they also searched out what it meant. They looked forward to God's promised Messiah, and we have the benefit of hindsight to appreciate what they spoke of. Although when Jesus returns for us, we'll know even more. They spoke of a salvation that would be revealed through the Messiah. The prophets would have struggled to reconcile the, the dual issue in verse 11, both the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. But we have the benefit of knowing that because Jesus suffered, the glories following his sufferings include his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification, his, his enthronement at the right hand of God, his second coming, his millennial reign, not to mention the, the amazing eternal state that is coming. There's some good stuff there, isn't there? And for many of the Old Testament prophets, they didn't fully understand all that they wrote. For some of them, it was closed up until years later. And although many prophecies had relevance to their day, in some respects, they ministered to future generations. For at least some of the Old Testament prophecies looked into the distant future when written. Now the Holy Spirit has inspired the apostles to preach the gospel that took the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus and applied them so that we can understand our salvation. And they were, uh, they set down the, the, the doctrines that we need to understand the gospel. And now the baton's been passed through onto us through the generations so that the gospel is still preached. And we've got a role to play in that as God gives us opportunity. And Peter mentions in verse 12 that these are things that angels desire to look into. It's sort of literally to stoop down and get a better look at. The angels are very interested in what God is doing 
to achieve the salvation of man, for through it, God is glorified. The angels have been in God's presence since their creation. And for those angels who didn't rebel, they've chosen to remain true to God. So they don't need salvation as we do. They don't have experience of salvation. So they're looking on to see what God is doing. And it's good. From what we've seen today, we have so much to rejoice about. God has done so much for us. And it is very, very good. Let's get excited by it. Let's never become jaded in our faith. Let's never take our salvation for granted or get weary in enjoying it. But let's be ever grateful to God for sending his son, Jesus, to die for us. Let me finish with a quote from Warren Wearsby. He says, for Christians, it is glory all the way. When we trusted Christ, we were born for glory. We are being kept for glory. As we obey him and experience trials, we're being prepared for glory. When we love him, trust him and rejoice in him, we experience the glory here and now. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done. Lord, we've seen some amazing things this morning for which we thank you. Thank you that you are good in the first place. You've created us in your image. You've given us Jesus Christ, but not just salvation. You've given us a living hope. You've given us eternal life. You've given us the, the inheritance that goes with that. And it's one that will never fail, never become corrupted, never become jaded, but it's fresh and living daily. Lord, help us, please, to live in the good of that day by day, that we can really be prepared to be the loving, joyous bride of Jesus Christ when he comes for us. And we ask in his precious name. Amen.